people come to me in therapy and go, oh, you know, can you sort me out? I've had this problem for 30 years, but I want you to fix it in 12 weeks. Welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where I interview leaders not defined by position or title. Everyday people who lead their lives in extraordinary ways. And on this podcast, they share their stories, their life lessons and practical tools in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Today, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Miss um, Marteka Swavi, who I've had the pleasure of getting to know the last, what, 12 to 18 months? And just um, via LinkedIn, and shared a stage and a couple of different things and Clubhouse had some great conversations. And Marteka, for those who don't know, is a founder of Benevolent Health. She is an OG in the mental health space. That's what I'm going to call her because she's been doing this for about 15 years in NHS, private, corporate, third sector. Like you worked in like prisons. When I looked at her. I was like, wow, like, that's a very, very, very role. How are you doing, Mateka? I am really well. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm excited to share the platform with you, talking about all things mental health. <laughs> <laughs> now, I am, I, am, I am looking forward to this. And in fact, I, I want to start with, with sleep. Mm. Sleep and mental health. <laughs> because there was, was Sleep Awareness Day um, two days ago, a couple of days ago, wasn't it? It was recently. Yeah, the 18th, yeah. Yeah. So, and, um, and I, saw, I saw the post that you put up, and recently I've been doing a lot of research into sleep because a friend of mine asked me, you know, how do you be, what do you feel about how many hours of sleep a day do you have? He's yeah. like, do you have eight hours a day? And I'm like, I don't do eight hours a day and even when I looked into the research around it, that was just based on a doctor from like nineteen eighties and nineties. So I tend to have personally five or six hours a day and we kinda had this long conversation around the impact of sleep and how he was that's not good enough. It affects your mental health, all that kind of stuff. So what's your since you're the expert in this game, can you talk to me about sleep and the, if the impact it has on mental health as well as what is the ideal time you should be sleeping? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on sleep, though. I will say that, even mm. though I, I do have expertise on in, in mental health. Um, but the uh, the idea that, you know, that there's this kind of set time that, you know, we all need to sleep. Um, I, I guess it's a bit like diets and, you know, like uh, how you respond, how your body responds to diets. Like some of us do really well with like no carbs some do you know better with having you know more protein or you know vegan diet whatever it is and I think there's not a one-size-fits-all and and that's the same for mental health I think that it's an individual thing and I think that you know some app some people can survive on five six hours sleep they function and they're fine and so you know there's no point going oh I need to have seven I mean the average amount of adult sleep um, is around the sort of seven to eight hour mark. Um, but actually some people function on less and they're fine with that. So mm. I really think it's, you know, the, the thing with sleep is if you feel well rested and you're, you know, productive during your day and you don't have trouble falling asleep, you're not continuously waking up, then you've probably got a good sleep pattern. I think it's for people that <clears throat> constantly have interrupted sleep 
you know, perhaps struggle with insomnia or are quite anxious and, you know, maybe have other um, things going on underneath that needs to be looked at or dealt with. So I would say that five, six hours for you is probably quite healthy if you, you know, you feel good when you wake up, you feel rested and you can you can get on with your day. Yeah, I feel, I feel great because I literally just get up and go for my exercise. So I'm definitely in a good space. And in our culture, and I would say culture, that is still around this hustle mentality, how does a lack of sleep then impact your your mental health? Whether that's six hours, eight hours, or whatever, it doesn't really make a difference. But how does that actually impact your mental health when you don't actually rest your your mind and your body properly? Yeah, I mean, I mean, when we're always switched on, I think the challenge is, you know, when we're always switched on and we're anxious, um, you know, we've got more cortisol flowing around our body, which is, you know, the stress hormone. So if you think of fight and and flight, you know, the 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 need to kind of get stuff done and constantly be on and, you know, in that sort of hustle drive. And, um, you know, it's good, it's good for us to feel a little bit of stress and that kind of pressure to get stuff done. I think that's healthy. But when that's consistent and that's how you live, like every single day, you get out of balance. And, you know, what starts to happen is that you have this cortisol that's in your body all the time. And, you know, the adrenaline's flowing, you kind of feel that fight, flight phase all the time and you can't switch off. And so, you know, when it comes to resting or sleeping or winding down, you just can't do it because you, you you know, you flooded your body with all these sort of adrenaline um, hormones. So I think it's good in short bursts to get us to take action. Um, But, you know, if you live like that continuously, it's probably gonna lead to some kind of fatigue or burnout um, and, and feeling quite tired. And I think that, you know, in the pandemic, one of the things that I hear a lot, particularly in the corporate space with increased workloads, increased pressure, is actually people are starting to feel this sort of fatigue and, you know, it's called lockdown fatigue. Um, but actually, you know, people are, are switched on too much. I think the blur between work and home, you know, where we've brought our work into our home lives and there's not that clear separation anymore. And also, you know, we're not using our annual leave. Like we're spending so much time, much more time working. You know, we don't have the commutes anymore. Instead of using that time perhaps to do something, you know, like exercise or something kind of to take care of our our well-being, our mental health, you know, we're, we're switching on early doing emails. Um, and and then, you know, we can't go on holiday at the moment. So we're all stuck at home going, I'm sick of going for walks. <laughs> what can I do now? So, you know, it's it's all of this stuff that, we, you know, probably that's built into our usual day-to-day that we take for granted. You know, the idea of commuting to and from work and you listen to a podcast or you read a book or, you know, you... I don't know, you just switch off, you sit in a, you know, your own thoughts for an hour, whatever, you know, that time helps us to unpack and unwind. And, you know, when you take that away and you're just jumping from one task to another, it can leave us feeling very, very tired and fatigued. Yeah. And as you were talking, I'm thinking, 
So we've, we've stripped away our, I guess, our daily routine in a sense. And our routine has changed. And not necessarily for the, belt, for the better, I think it's definitely got worse, which we've seen with a lot of reports come out with people feeling the way that you've described and the mental health um, going through the roof and, and getting worse and worse and worse during the pandemic period. But then in a world where we are going to be effectively operating in a hybrid environment where it's going to be a combination of home and work, how do people... Let's start with the people first. How do people create new habits and new routines that ensure that they look after their mental health? And we can go into the corporate side next. Yeah. So I think for individuals, I think there's probably three key things that I would think about. And the first thing is like, you know, in terms of productivity, how you chunk up your day. And I think that, you know, we're in such a kind of distraction age, aren't we? Where we've got phone notifications going off all the time. We're on our emails. Like, you know, we've got Amazon deliveries, that, you know, kids, all these things kind of distracting our, our, our attention. And I think it's really important to, I, I hate um, lists of things to do. I hate having a things to do list. I prefer to have like, three priorities that I need to focus on that day and they're the things that I get done and those things are scheduled into you know my diary and how I work and I have productive work time so that means switching off my notifications switching off my emails and just having that 45 minutes to an hour to focus on um you know each task so and that's chunked into my day and then what I feel at the end of that is that I've accomplished something and I don't have this massive to-do list that then I haven't achieved most of it and it rolls on to the next day. So I think like chunking up your time and having micro tasks really helps to structure our time. The second thing I would think about is just your daily, your daily habits and, you know, what you do every day to kind of keep well and when I say wellness and, and when I talk about mental fitness, I mean, you know, good sleep, relationships, financial well-being, eating healthy, exercising and taking care of our mental health that way. And, and that's really important to fit some of those things into every day. Um, so, for example, one of my kind of must do's for my well-being is I need to like walk or be outside some of the day. This also really helps sleep and, um, you know, having sunlight and, and being outside in the fresh air. So, you know, even if I just walk 10 minutes to the shop and back, that I've been outside and walked somewhere every day. Now, everyone will have a different kind of way of doing this and there may be more than one or two things that you do but I think it's really important to incorporate some kind of mental fitness routine into your daily habits um, and then the final thing that I would say is just around the, the heart and mind piece and that's really what I touched on when I was talking earlier about you know that commute to work and that commute home where you listen to a podcast or read a book or just sit with your thoughts I think we need to intentionally create a space for ourselves in terms of connecting with 
or some kind of check-in or check-out of the day. And, you know, people like mindfulness, meditation, it might be, you know, prayer. It could be that you go and do some exercise. That's how people kind of, you know, get into their, their mind and body. But however you want to do it, the point is that you you kind of, you, you figure out how you can get that into your into your day. So um, they would be my three kind of recommendations for individuals. I really, really like those tips. That's why I like to get practical with people so they can actually take that wisdom and apply it to their lives and make a difference. And then in terms of the the corporate space, mental health has been, for me, it's, it's been a, I say it's a buzzword that's been around the last couple of years now. It's mm-hmm. gone from radio silence to talking a lot about mental health, mental health, mental health. Yet, year in, year out, you still see the economic cost of mental health going up and up and up and up. I think last time I checked, it was like 100 billion or something like that when you take into account loss of work, absenteeism, all that kind of stuff. So even though there's a lot of talk around it, in terms of practical steps that organisations can can take to create and to actually to prioritise the mental health of their employees, what would that actually look like? I mean, there's there's many ways to do this. And I, again, one size doesn't fit all. Um, but I, I think at the moment we're on this really exciting opportunity as we start to build out what a hybrid workplace looks like. Um, you know, I think that there's an opportunity to really incorporate um, well-being into this. And I think also, you know, with that, we were speaking about this a little bit earlier in terms of diversity and inclusion and creating more equi- equitable workplaces, that actually, you know, mental health and well-being is going to be, for me, part of this, uh, you know, equitable space. And, and actually that feeling of belonging, creating culture and where people feel belong belongs where people feel heard and seen and validated is really important and I think you know the the mental health narrative will be key to creating some of that so um I see mental health a bit like kind of you know IT skills that you know you can't work these days if you don't know how to use a computer if you can't use Microsoft and I think that for leaders for managers for colleagues going forward you're going to have to have a basic understanding awareness of how to manage, you know, mental health and people's mental health issues. I think that um, for me, um, the three sort of areas that I've seen um, have the biggest impact around mental health and well-being has been on people's experience of working remotely. So there's been a lot more talk around um, social connection um, and that feeling of isolation when you, you know, you're working predominantly remotely um, on your own uh, in, in, and it can feel quite siloed. Um, I, I think there is also a narrative around leadership capacity um, and particularly around, you know, a more compassionate uh, and empathetic leadership and how we build into capacity, how we build into um, leadership capacity to be able to have mental health conversations and feel comfortable um, having those conversations. And then uh, I think that the, the final bit for me is how we're shifting in terms of productivity. And I think that, you know, that the challenge of 
you know, all these new ways of working is it can be quite tiring kind of, you know, when you've got a routine that now you have to figure out a new routine. And I think what we've seen is definitely an increase in workload um, for, for many people, particularly, you know, people that have competing agendas at home. So, you know, parents that have had to homeschool and do a full time job has been extremely challenging. Um, during lockdown and so I think kind of managing workload and thinking about mental health beyond stress anxiety depression and much more into kind of flourishing and thriving and how we can create environments that are you know help people to be more productive is going to be a really key conversation you know as we build out happier and healthier hybrid workplaces yeah I just you touch on around the the link between um creating inclusive, diverse, equitable workforces and mental health. Prior to last year and and Black Lives Matter, and when you compare that to now, have you seen an increase or a change in the demand from people from ethnic backgrounds relating to their mental health and more inquiries as or has that been just the same or has it been, what have you seen happen? Yeah, I mean, so I still work in private practice uh, with patients who have, you know, mental health uh, issues. And I I definitely seen my workload shift Um, definitely had way more inquiries. Um, majority of my client base are uh, black, Asian from an ethnic minority. And so I, I think that, you know, the, the demand has definitely increased. I think as we go forward, coming out of COVID, once we've kind of, you know, managed all the crisis stuff that's come out of this and having to force our way into changing, um, I you know, the, certainly from, you know, statistics that, you know, we're saying the next three to four years, we're going to see the impact on mental health. So we know that there's going to be an increased demand. Um, and I, I think we're seeing an increased demand across the board, not just from, um, you know, black brain communities, however you want to, to look at that. Um, but I think that the, the challenge um, will be how we, how we meet that demand and, and what that looks like, because the, the challenge that we've got as a nation and, and other nations will have this as well, is that we don't have enough qualified clinicians to to support this and to manage this um and so we need to think about how we work differently and you know there's been mental health first aiders and you know peer support networks but i think you know in terms of cultural nuancing and if we're particularly speaking to a black audience i think we need to think about you know providing support providing services providing uh, training that is actually uh, culturally nuanced and increases our cultural com competence because you know we're not the same and we do need to have I feel a, a different approach to, uh, to to support and I think one of the biggest uh, the one of the biggest reasons people come to see me and I ask them like okay what made you you know pick my profile and often it's because you're because you're a black therapist. There isn't many black therapists. 
And, you know, there's something about in organisations, but also when we pick coaches, when we pick therapists, when we want to work with others, that we want to work with people that look like us. And I think that's not, um, you know, it's it's not considered particularly um, in the corporate space. Certainly, uh, I, I feel disappointed often um, that the, the narrative um, around mental health can be um, very, very Eurocentric and very focused on a specific um, way of doing things that doesn't, you know, that's not useful actually for all cultures. And, and representation is important to be able to see people that look like you is important for inclusivity to, you know, for that sense of belonging. Um, and so, you know, I, for, for, for myself, for, for the, what I'm doing with benevolent health, for me, it's always about, you know, opening up that narrative and, you know, providing a different narrative, a more diverse narrative um, to contextualize um, issues that um, perhaps are not represented very well if you you know you don't have that cultural competence or understanding and that doesn't mean that you have to be black necessarily to to work with black people I don't think that um, but it's just about understanding that you know people have a different frame of reference they have a different way of relating they have a different culture and it's just about being aware of that and understanding that yeah, that's that's exactly why I asked you that that question actually because when you think about um, um, black people, for example, from a cultural perspective, mental health is still a stigma subject, mm. and then you now go that into work where it's like, okay, I've already got demands on my head of I need to the old nation are working twice as hard, I can't be seen as weak, I need to do this, 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 this. If I mention my mental health. That sets mm. me back and I get looked at completely differently. Mm. And what I've seen in a lot of conversations I've had over the last um, six, six or nine months since all that happened last year has been actually a lot of people be like, no, actually, I need help with my mental health. And my work offers services, therefore, I want to tap into that. But they've also mentioned to me exactly what you just said right now is what they have found is when they've gone to look for people who can understand where they're coming from and the cultural references, they can't find a lot of them. So they'll go to like one session and be like, that was a waste of time because what this person was telling me didn't really hit home. It didn't, we couldn't connect. And you need to be able to connect with the person you're going to be talking to or working with. So which is why it's more important we need more people and more people who can understand. Is the understanding that's the key, which a lot of it comes from your lived experience. Or being able to be like, okay, that person's... Okay, I do, we can break down some barriers straight away and talk to that person because that person looks similar to me. So how do we begin to change things, especially in, in your field, and make people, I guess, more comfortable, more open to be able to meet and talk to people who need who need that help or are scared to reach out? I mean, that's a, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, in terms of, because of, uh, I, I think that's multifaceted in the sense of representation. I mean, certainly when I trained as a therapist, uh, I mean, I trained at Birkbeck, so it's a central London university, you know, it's like in the middle of London. So, um, you know, there there wasn't many, there was probably like maybe three or four of us in the in the class. 
Um, and interestingly, there was more women than men that particularly, uh, sorry, more men than women training that particular year, which was unusual. So I think there's something about the, um, the, the number of, of trained qualified practitioners um, that, that can make a difference. And obviously that's a kind of a bit more of a longer journey mm-hmm. um, in terms of representation, because I think that representation breaks down barriers um, in terms of uh, a sense of belonging and, you know, being able to see people that look like you. Um, and then I think that the, the other angle that you touched on was just around the stigma in around mental health, but particularly in, in the black community. Um, and I think that, you know, what we know about the workplace is that actually something like 11% of people will talk to their manager um, about their mental health issues. And we know that, you know, EAPs, um, employee assistance programs and occupational health type support that you access through HR are very uh, underutilized in, in organizations. So we know that people feel um, I guess it's a barrier to to ask for help when you have to go through these processes, right? On the flip side of that, when you look at kind of public sector services and mental health and the statistics, you know, very few, for example, black men go to their GP and ask for, you know, a psychological therapy like IAPS for CBT. But we have an overrepresentation of black men in, um in acute wards uh you know for uh, mental health and in prisons and in um you know what i would call the kind of blue light uh services and the way in there is much easier so you know there's some systemic issues within that 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 need to be addressed but there's something about you know that early help or that early support you know why isn't it why isn't it accessible and i think if we go oh and because they don't want to use the service or you know it's like because they don't access it that's not really an answer it, it's thinking about okay well well what does that look like when you know if i was to go and ask for help would i see uh, a, a black professional or with the um, literature even have any people that represent me or speak to me in a way that I can relate to so it's thinking about how we can you know approach uh, well-being and mental health in um, certain cultures in certain societies uh, particularly in the black um, culture and and make it more accessible that it's not um, you know it's not this kind of uh maybe I, I don't know what the right word is, the, the kind of the stigmatized approach that we think around mental illness, you know, like schizophrenia, bipolar, all these sort of serious mental illness conditions. And actually that we all have mental health, you know, stress, anxiety, depression affects everyone, you know, regardless of, of, of race. So it's how do we have those earlier conversations and how do we have them in a way that connects to specific groups of, of, of people? Um, and and in this conversation, we're speaking about, um, you know, black people. Did you say 11% of people talk to their managers? Of their mental health, they will say they've got a back pain or that they, um, you know, that they, that they, the other, the other one, um, muscul- musculoskeletal problems, 
is is the first uh, reason for for being absent. <laughs> but people don't say they're off work for stress. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that's that's um. I think when you when you said that number, I mean, I was like eleven percent. That's a really ridiculous low number, and that goes yeah. to show that people can't don't feel that they can have those kind of conversations with leaders, and. Mm-hmm. Then leads to my next question to you is how do you, what can leaders do to be able to breach and increase that number from 11% so people do feel safe, even if it's just to have an initial conversation, rather than get into the extremes where you then see people like burn out and different things happen and then it goes from yeah. mental health to mental illness because they haven't been, had a chance to, yeah. to speak up and do something about it. I mean, leaders need to get more comfortable with, with, how you know having open conversations about mental health and I I think that until we all speak about this and make it part of our everyday conversations uh you know it's always going to be a bit of a taboo um and and I think as well from a leadership perspective it's about being transparent and and open I mean certainly some a lot of the conversations I'm having um, in organisations and in the, the workshops and training that I do is actually that leadership capacity, you know, that ability to be vulnerable, um, you know, to increase your self-awareness, to um, lead compassionately and and, empath- and and more empathetic and be more empathetic. And I think that's, you know, some leaders already have that kind of level of emotional intelligence and that's how they are. They do that naturally. That's just who they are. And I think other leaders need support to kind of open that up and be able to do that. So, you know, how do you talk to your teams about mental health, well-being? How is it on the agenda? Um, you know, are you just saving these conversations for kind of, you know, when there's a mental health awareness week or, you know, Black History Month? Do you start having these conversations or is it, you know, is it part of, is it embedded in your culture? Is it embedded in what you do? You know, how do you check in with your team? You know, what do you do if you notice people are becoming unwell or, you know, something's wrong? So I think I think it's uh, it's about how you do it every day. Just like what I was talking about earlier with the individuals and daily habits. You know, it's these daily habits that we that we form that keep us well. And it's the same with having these conversations. It needs to be it's like a dripping tap. It needs to be, you know, little and often consistent. It can't be, you know, something that you do once a year and and that's it. That has no impact. Would you say it's, is it down to, in fact, let me rephrase my question. What are the signs that people can look for? That leaders can look for, that individual friends can look for when with their with their friends or their colleagues or whatever, when things don't seem to be just right. Because I've also had instances when I worked in organizations where that person just they'll say, Oh, what happened to that person? Oh, he just he just went off the rails or he just he just dropped and now he's out. It's like it didn't happen overnight. There were signs that were there, but you just weren't looking for them. So how is it how can leaders look for them, especially in a in a hybrid world when you're not you're not next to that yeah. person every single time or you might just be in and out with that person. Yeah. I mean, proximity makes a difference. And I think that's one of the challenges many leaders, managers have 
um, flagged in COVID, you know, working remotely, that it's been much more difficult to kind of get a gauge of that. Um, and, and I guess it comes down to how well you know your team to be able to have those robust conversations. But, you know, people are starting new roles uh, remotely now. And, you know, this is going to perhaps continue as a bit of a norm. So it, it goes back to my point about how is this built into your culture and how do you have regular check-ins around, you know, people's mental health, people's well-being, you know, daily habits, self-care routines, sharing what you're doing. How do you just make this part of every day? Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I think sometimes, you know, people are unwell and they are suffering with burnout or stress, anxiety, depression, and they do need help. Um, as in, you know, uh, professional treatment support, not just a, uh, a line management in, uh, engagement. So I, I think that it's about, you know, how do I keep, I think that the emphasis has to be on how do I keep my team well? How do I keep them healthy? And not how do I support them when I, they get really ill? Um, I think that's the, the, the kind of the wrong way of thinking uh, about it. And we have to kind of switch that narrative. Um, the other thing I would say um, on that is just around our, um, our sense of self and our own self-awareness. And I think, you know, our ability to be emotionally vulnerable and share what we're struggling with in our own lives and our own faults our own flaws particularly as leaders really opens up the door for people to say I I'm struggling with that too or this is what's going on for me and you can have much more real and open conversations when people see that you're just as fallible as they are and that you're human um, so you know how do you keep the conversations human um, is, is really key um, and in terms of like actual spotting early warning signs, I mean, you know, there are ob obvious symptoms of stress, anxiety, depression, and, and often they overlap, um, you know, as in, you know, people becoming, um, you know, more, perhaps a little bit more volatile or more emotional, um, you know, or, you know, they're off sick because they're having frequent headaches or other um, health issues. Um, and, and these are all things to look out for, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody has a mental health issue. It doesn't mean that at all. Um, but I, I think that actually one that's really easy to look out for and people often overlook is presenteeism and, and you know, people spending more time at work, uh, more time on their email, working out of hours, working weekends, um, that's a much easier thing to be able to spot and have a conversation about and manage boundaries around than it is when people become unwell and they're not coming in. It's very, very, very helpful. And how would you define what leadership means to you? <laughs> what leadership means to me? I mean, my experience as a leader and also being led, because I think there's something about good leaders are also good servants. Um, and, you know, the, the leaders that I've kind of learned the most from and resonated with the most have been the ones that, um, I mean, I remember having this, um, she was my last boss, actually. 
Um, I mean, I've been um, in, in this business for four years now, but the last boss I had, um, she, she, I remember her being very um, interested in, in kind of my style of working. And actually, you know, she took the time to kind of get to know how I like to be communicated with, um, you know, what my style of working with was and how, you know, she could support that. But also she told me about her expectations. So I, I felt really clear um, and, and she was super approachable. Like if I was struggling with something, you know, she um, always had time to talk to me about that. So for me, it's, you know, leadership styles are interesting because I think that, you know, you can have a certain style and a way of being but actually if that doesn't get the best out of someone then what's the point of it so I think good leaders are a bit like chameleons they can adapt to their environments and they can adapt to the people that they're working with and I always you know as a leader myself I always like to understand you know how can I get the best out of you like what do you need from me to help you be the best version of you. And also understanding people's proclivities in terms of what their strengths are and what they're good at and trying to give them more of that and less of the things that, you know, they're not so good at. And that's not always possible, you know, when you work in an organization and you've got a role. Um, but I think if you wanna get the most out of your people, then you have to really understand them as individuals and what, you know, makes them tick if you like. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's, so it's a very interesting question when I ask people that. I just start thinking, hey, I'm not quite sure if I've got a definition. And then it's like, actually, I've got one. And, and here's what it kind of looks like. And I completely agree with that. It's it's not one size fits all. It's about kind of having that situational leadership style where depending on who you're working with and who you're around, you kind of adapt yourself and your mm. skill sets to that person so you can get the best out of them rather than just mm. saying, Here's who I am, and you have, kind of have to adhere to that, which we know doesn't really get you anywhere. Doesn't doesn't really really work. And, I mean, um, sometimes that that's not possible as well. Like I think you know, people often forget when they work in an organisation. Obviously, the organisation has a um, has a purpose. It has you know, you've got a, a a role to play, if you like, and so sometimes things aren't possible that you might want to do or that you feel is acceptable. And I don't think there's anything wrong with just being clear with people around, you know, the expectations and, you know, the boundaries of that. I, I think that's really helpful as well on the flip side to know kind of, you know, what is expected and, and you know, what your purpose is because otherwise you can feel like you're drifting or that it's a bit boundaryless. And so, I think it's also helpful to, you know, to as a as a leader to be clear about, you know, what's not possible and what you can't do, because um, I think that helps people to feel safe and contained. Actually, yeah, definitely. Then the the more open and honest you can be around what you want and what you expect, but also being open to listen to the other person it helps that relationship grow. It's like getting to know someone, isn't it? The more you get to know someone, the more you understand how they work and their routines are. And therefore you don't end up clashing, but you actually work really, really well together because you've taken that time to understand each other. So it's like a two-way relationship rather than a one-way relationship. 
Well, I mean, what you get at that cross, you know, that crossroads or that level of vulnerability, if you like, is the acceptance and the ability to challenge. And, you know, that's what's important, I think, about particularly, you know, with diverse workplaces and diverse narratives is that it challenges the status quo, doesn't it? It challenges the way you do things. It challenges the way you think because we all have our biases. We all have our ways of doing things that we think are right. Um, you know, we all have our annoying habits that, you know, are unique to us that, um, you know, that we, that we come with. We're human, right? And so, um, and I think that's okay. I don't think, you know, we have to be these perfect beings. It's just like, it's okay to get it wrong. But I, I think it, there's something about, you know, that tolerance for each other. And, you know, what you talked about is kind of figuring out, you know, how to navigate around that. And also to be able to challenge and make jokes about, you know, people's little quirks and nuances that they have. And, you know, and it makes you think, doesn't it? Like, you know, when people kind of rib me about my, you know, that I'm anal about some things, I, I actually go, yeah, that's true. And, and, and it makes me think. So I actually think all of that is part of having a healthy culture and having good mental health because you're able to be yourself um, and feel accepted and, you know, feel that people around you accept you for who you are. Have you always been of any of a vulnerable and self-aware person? Is that something that were well, the key things that you've had to do personally to help you to develop that level that you currently have right now? I mean, I, I struggle massively with vulnerability, <laughs> hugely. I mean, I, 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 um, I, I really, you know, it's really been a journey for me. I, I mean, I've had like years of my own therapy um, to understand myself. I think that's one of the things that's given me the biggest area of self-awareness um, is, is my own personal therapy. I think, you know, whenever you get into close relationship with anyone, um, you know, if you're married or living with someone or... or you know, you have children, I think that's another layer of kind of challenge to how you like to do things <laughs> and having to compromise um, on, you know, your own, uh, your own ways of being, right? And I think in the workplace, you know, if you think of it like an extended family, you know, you've got all these personalities and all these different ways of kind of being and, you know, everyone's got, their own stuff that they carry so obviously you come into work you know and you've got a role and you know you've got a task to do and you've got these boundaries that kind of set that out but also you know you are human and so you you come with a load of faults and defects and and also having to work out those of other people so I think it's always a learning experience but I, I, what I have learned over the years is to be curious. So, you know, when things bother me or I don't like something or I have a resistance to something, I'm always curious about why. And the first place I look is in my own self and not in that 
other person or that thing that's happening that's bothering me because I think it's really easy to deflect and think that oh the problem's out there it's not to do with me and actually often the things that really bother us or the things that we're uncomfortable with come from something inside of us and if we can understand what that is I think that helps us to then navigate and decide whether it's something that we need to confront and deal with 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 the other person or it's something that actually we can live with or maybe have to resolve inside ourselves Mm. that introspection of is this about me is this about someone else is very very important but also very hard (laughs) to, to kind of do and 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 to to sit with yourself and examine certain statements and experiences and um, get that clarification between do I really need to change and fix it by myself or was that person completely wrong? Mm. And that's not, um, that's a skill that you need to, to learn and you need to develop. But I think before you get to that level, you need to be willing to do it. Now that willingness is, it doesn't come naturally to, to a lot of people. Mm. And um, based on obviously your work, how can someone mm. to gain to that next level that you've just described of vulnerability and um, transparency and understanding? Mm. I mean, you know, I'd love to give you a do this, this and this. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, this is one of those answers where you just have to figure it out. And the reality is that you need to like, you know, in life, I think that you, you you don't always have clarity on why you're doing stuff or, you know, where you're at or what to do next. And it's that capacity to tolerate uncertainty. And I think that's one of the challenges that the pandemic's thrown up for a lot of people that have been very comfortable, had everything mapped out and kind of known what they're doing for the next three, six, nine, 12 months. And, you know, the pandemic's just put a stop to that for all of us. Like, we've just had to kind of, you know, manage day to day. Um, and I'm not saying that that's a good place to be long term either, to, to, to be living day to day like that. Um, but I, I, I think that there's something about being able to manage uncertainty and be OK with not knowing and being honest about that. You know, if you can be honest that actually you don't have the answer and you're feeling a bit stuck and lost, and, you know, you don't know what the right thing to say is. I really think, like, you know, this whole kind of narrative that's going on in organisations at the moment around, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, creating more equitable um, workplaces, if people could sit together and say, I'm I'm lost in this, you know, like, I don't even know what the right things are to say or what to do in in this, and, and have conversations like that, I think that they that that you know something really constructive can come from that because you know people can sit in a place together and be lost and try and figure it out and talk about being lost and I think that's that's part of the process of um working yourself out working other people out that you you know you are going to have to I guess trial and error and get it a bit wrong and that will be uncomfortable um and 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 really there's there's no way to navigate that. I mean, people come to me in therapy and go, Oh, you know, can you sort me out? I've have I had this problem for 30 years, but I want you to fix it in 12 weeks. And it's like, mm. 
I'm good at this. <laughs> but. <laughs> and if I was, I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> but, you know, you, you have to be prepared to put in the work. And, and that's what people don't want to do. You know, we want the... We want to go into McDonald's and get the, you know, the drive through and pay at one window and get the food at the other window. And it's, it's not how it works. It's a it's a it's a process that takes time and you've got to figure it out. And there's going to be some bumps in the road. But, you you know, you'll survive. So don't be afraid. Just uh, roll your sleeves up and um, <laughs> get uncomfortable. <laughs> It's okay to be uncomfortable. That's how you grow. That's how well, you grow. Well, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people don't like being uncomfortable, and I think that's the challenge. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. What does success yeah, I mean? mean? I mean, when when we talk about white fragility, that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? Around race is is being uncomfortable. Um, you know, it, it, having that dialogue and being uncomfortable and not running away from it, not feeling that stress and running away from it. And and I think that, you know, that fragility in all of us is there, isn't it? To want to run away from something that's painful, or that makes us feel ashamed or that, you know, is a little bit uncomfortable to navigate because we might say the wrong things. I think that's really common in mental health. People don't have those conversations because they don't want to say the wrong things. And it's not because they're a bad person or, you know, they... Are avoiding it it's just that they're they're a bit lost and stuck and so you know how 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 can I help that is always my conversation because we miss an opportunity by not having the dialogue that's my point yeah, definitely and, and agree. an opportunity to learn about ourselves but also to learn about other people and and, and at the end that's that's a good thing yeah and it's it's always interesting how the things that are good for us that will help us to either bridge a gap or to learn certain things about ourselves we that but ultimately require us to be uncomfortable we kind of take a step back from and it's so easy to be like yeah i know i need to do that but i really don't want to because it's too it's too hard it's too uncomfortable but like you said once you get in it once Mm. you start to realize the the benefits because you start to unravel so much and then once you get come out on the other side of things, you feel so much better. Like, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I do this earlier? Why didn't I go through this earlier? But it's that initial fear and uncomfortableness, especially when it comes to conversations around race, where I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to be yeah. counselled. All those kind of things come up and you have the freedom, like you said, white fragility, to be able to be like, because I don't want to engage, I can just take a step mm-hmm. back. But if you really wanted to build relationship and build bridges and start to understand people and create environments where, like we took leaders before, where relationships can go from that 11% where people can talk to their managers, you need to lean into the uncomfortableness so you can actually get to understand what people are going through and start to build that trust with each other. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I've got to jump off in five minutes because I've got another thing. But um, I, I think I will. Um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll end on on this just around um, around our our ability to kind of be a bit lost and 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 be a bit stuck. And you know, that's the the thing is, if you don't do it you or or you avoid it and you miss out on that opportunity of of learning about self or other is that you 
find yourself in the same situation again and again and again. So you find that it actually doesn't really go away. Um, so you're actually not really solving anything. You know, it, it, it may seem easier to ignore it, um, but really it's just festering somewhere. So it's a bit of an illusion to think that by ignoring it, it's, you know, it doesn't have a life and it's not going to uh, affect us. So I, I think that's a bit of a fantasy. Um, and often, you know, certainly with the patients I see, um, in, in therapy, you know, often the things that they're struggling with the most have been issues that they've just put aside for years and years and years and years and years and, years and not wanted to deal with. So I think for organisations that, you know, believe that kind of doing, you know, a, a one-off workshop in Black History Month or, you know, a, a one-off workshop on Mental Health Awareness Day is going to, you know, change kind of mental health or, um, you know, equality, diversity, inclusion in an organisation, it's a fantasy. Like, you know, that that this has to be properly embedded in a structured way um, and, and really personalised and tailored to, you know, the culture of the organisations and the individuals that are there if we really want to have change and impact. So, you know, my question always is that, you know, are we just kind of ticking the boxes and, you know, be seen to do the right thing, have all these amazing charters with sort of no actions behind them? Uh, or are we actually really changing people's lives? Because I think coming out of COVID, building hybrid workplaces, we've got a real opportunity to change and impact people's lives. And I think organisations that are taking this really seriously and leaders that really want to do something, I believe in 10 years time, maybe even sooner, these are going to be the thriving and flourishing organisations, right? That the, the organisations that people really want to work for, that are queuing up to work for. And, uh, and, and the ones that don't do anything about this are just, you know, it's going to impact their bottom line. So I, I really don't feel it's a choice in terms of, you know, I don't think we've got the comfort anymore to ignore these festering problems that we do have to, you know, get uncomfortable and, you know, feel a bit of pain and, and, and work through it. So um, my challenge <laughs> to anyone listening <laughs> is, you know, don't don't avoid the, the tough stuff. It's it's uh, it just keeps you stuck. And, and I'm not just speaking to you as a as a leader or, you know, as a as a corporate, but as an individual, if you've got stuff in your life that keeps coming up again and again and again, you know, don't let that keep you stuck anymore. It's time to, you know, to, to look at it and, and deal with it and, and move forward because you, you'll win in the end from that, I believe. So, yeah. I'm going to drop Rant my, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to drop my, my imaginary mic there and just, just let it all go because that's a <laughs> brilliant way to absolutely finish on this because I can't, I can't, I can't add to that. So, Thank you very, very much for coming on and having this no, conversation. No. It's been it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure. Where can um, people find out more about you, about your organisation, about what you do? Yep. So I'm on LinkedIn, Martika Swaby. You can follow me there. Um, my organisation is Benevolent Health, www.benevolenthealth.co.uk. And we provide workplace wellbeing and particularly sitting at the uh, cusp of uh, all the intersectionality of wellbeing um, and race. We're really interested in that part of mental health um, to help create 
uh, a place of belonging for all your employees. And I think with mental health, it's really important to have diverse narratives because definitely one size does not fit all um, for, for well-being. Yeah, all Matika's information will be on in the show notes and definitely check her out, especially content on LinkedIn. So, so, so much fire, so much information, so valuable as well. And it's for free. So make sure you definitely do that. Thank you, Everyday Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them you can listen to old episodes or if you have a question about this episode or any other episodes you can just press a button and ask me that question and i'll answer it on the next episode don't forget to subscribe comment share this podcast with someone else we'll see you next time on everyday leadership